Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead this hour, we'll learn about a state program designed to help kids who are suicidal, but an investigation has found the program is struggling to keep up with demand. Staff shortages, lack of capacity, and funding are creating a dangerous situation. Also, we'll hear from the new director of the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, and a former political operative in Illinois has taken on a new career, marijuana farmer. A lot of farmers use cover crops. It's a way to enrich the soil and reduce some of the need for fertilizer, but the practice has still not been widely accepted. We'll hear how one city is using poetry to help improve health literacy. This weekend is the return of daylight saving time. It can be especially hard on those suffering from dementia. We'll talk about that. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. An Illinois Democratic insider has left the state and launched his second act. Mike Noonan was a top campaign operative for the state Democratic leader, Michael Madigan. But Noonan quit politics after Madigan's downfall in a corruption scandal. Dan Milopoulos visited Noonan recently at his new business, a marijuana farm in Michigan. Southland Farms in Niles, Michigan is a stoner's version of a winery or a craft brewery. Everything they sell here is grown on site from seed. And Mike Noonan refers to his newly opened organic cannabis store as a bud teak. Get it? You can walk into a, a retail store in the cannabis space and immediately see if the, which kind of green the owner likes more. Is it the green they put in the bank or is it the green they put in the bong? Near the cash register at Southland Farms, Noonan proudly displays his recently obtained certificate as a ganjier. In, uh, in uh, Humboldt County in July when I passed my three exams to become a certified ganjier. That's what they call someone who's trained to advise cannabis customers on their choices. Think of a ganjier like a sommelier, only for weed instead of wine. The new job is a lot different than what Noonan did for the last 25 years on our side of Lake Michigan. He was a top campaign operative for Michael Madigan, the longtime Illinois House Speaker and Democratic Party boss. Noonan even ran the first campaign for Illinois Attorney General for the boss's daughter, Lisa Madigan. Life has really transitioned and uh, all for the better. But Noonan's dramatic career change came only after the mighty Madigan machine burnt out. The Speaker resigned last year. Madigan has been indicted now, though he's fighting the charges. As for Noonan, he has not been implicated in the federal corruption cases, but the 54-year-old says it was clearly time for a change. Let's be honest, Dan. Maybe I wasn't the best at identifying the people who shouldn't be in politics, because obviously I still like and care for plenty of folks who, who are now seen as scoundrels, right? Noonan says he's used cannabis for decades, and he says Madigan knew it. In 1996, a uh, competitor in the political landscape went and reported me for using cannabis to the speaker's operation. Back then, marijuana was illegal, and Noonan says he expected to get fired by Madigan, but was pardoned. I had been a hardworking guy, and I think more importantly, I had been successful for them. And so the uh, 
reprimand that I got was from my boss at the time was, you've been reported. It doesn't seem to be affecting your work at all. See you tomorrow. Noonan also thinks he was allowed to keep his job because Madigan understood there's more than one side to everybody. It's a lesson Noonan says he's also applied to the current scandal. People who know me might say, well, Mike, you were friends with people who've been indicted, right? It's important to remember that nobody is just one thing. People can be good and they can be bad. The trial of four defendants in the Springfield scandal is scheduled to begin in March in federal court in Chicago. Noonan says he'll be 100 miles from there at his new business in Michigan, helping tend to dozens of deeply pungent, leafy plants growing under the lights in five climate-controlled rooms. Dan Mihalopoulos, WBEZ News. More Midwestern farmers are planting cover crops in their land, but the record high use of off-season crops that help the soil and reduce fertilizer use is still a tiny fraction of the total number of acres of farmland. Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports on efforts to increase the use of cover crops and how it may be part of the next farm bill. Tim Gottman's 2,400-acre farm in northeast Missouri looks harvested, but among the remnants of corn stalks are blobs of green plants that are thriving despite the cold and windy conditions of late winter in the Midwest. Gottman points to acres of gently sloping land wet from a recent rain. So all this water would be running that way, and, and if them terraces weren't there and, the, and this green, the wheat and rye weren't here, it would just allow the water to run faster and take the soil with it. And when the soil's leaving, your fertilizer's going with it. Gottman is a big fan of cover crops, and he says they're working to improve the bottom line of his corn and soybean farm. Back in his barn, he says it's more important to him to improve the land that has been in his family for more than 150 years. It's more to make the land at least as good as it was when we got it, if not better. Because we're just stewards of it. Gottman is not alone in increasing the use of cover crops. The University of Illinois completed a study using a combination of USDA reports and satellite images to produce the most accurate survey of cover crop usage in the Midwest. The study found in the past 10 years, the number of acres with cover crops tripled, but it comes with a big caveat. It is certainly not at a level that would be necessary for some of the challenges, like the water quality challenges, like soil erosion. It's going to take a lot more acres to get there. Jonathan Coppice is the director of the University of Illinois' Ag Policy Program. He says the new data shows the cover crop usage went from 1.8% to 7.2%, a big jump, but still a small number of acres. Coppice says he hopes there will be more incentives for cover crops put into the farm bill that's up for renewal this year. He says there could be more bipartisan support for a program that can help reduce fertilizer costs and work to address climate change, because cover crops can also help take carbon out of the atmosphere. We can use it maybe to design up policies that will help incentivize the behavior, help incentivize the practice. Um, it can maybe help jumpstart that by showing, you know, funds going in for this practice will get response on the ground and we can measure it. Cover crop usage is also getting endorsements from large agriculture groups, including the National Corn and Soybean Growers Associations. Kurt Beckman is the Director of Environmental Programs for Missouri Corn and works on national initiatives. He says there's been a lot of progress, but there needs to be more. I am a little bit surprised that we're only at 7-8%. Um, 
And I think that's part of the effort now is to figure out, okay, how do we get that to 15% in the next five years? Beckman says his group's focus has been on education and getting resources to farmers who want to plant cover crops. He says the Farm Bill could be part of that expansion, but he also says it's important for farmers to be encouraged and not forced. Really just want to make sure that it's voluntary. We don't want to mandate anything. We don't want farmers to be forced into planting cover crops on their acres. Um, We want them to make those decisions. They know their land better than anyone. 65% of Tim Gottman's farmland has cover crops on it, but he's also wary of too many incentives to get more farmers on board. He says people who chase grants aren't as successful. He wants to see each farmer figure out how cover crops work for them, Maybe it's rye and wheat on his land and radishes on the farm down the road. Like I say, we have neighbors doing it the exact opposite of what we're doing. But we're all happy with how we're doing it because the end result is we're holding our soils. We're, we're getting good yields. You know, it's beneficial to us. I can't imagine farming without it now. The current farm bill expires in September, and incentives for cover crops will be a tiny sliver of what looks to be more than a half a trillion dollar package but there will be countless programs and initiatives competing for those dollars. I'm Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. A reminder that we lose an hour of sleep this weekend as we spring forward and move our clocks ahead one hour early on Sunday. Studies have linked daylight saving time to depression, headaches, a slowed metabolism, even weight gain. The health risks can be especially challenging for those who suffer from Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Melissa Tucker is Director of Family Services for the Illinois Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and she spoke with Eric Stock about how longer daylight is especially disruptive on Alzheimer's patients and their caregivers. There's a couple of things going on there. Um, We do know, as you said, that people with dementia often have trouble sleeping. They, They tend to sleep during the day and be awake at night. We're not really sure what is specifically causing that. Um, but there is a change in the circadian rhythms of of people with dementia. And that can be really hard on the caregivers if they're being uh, kept awake at night. And any change in routine is also difficult for people with Alzheimer's disease. As people get out of those very early stages, it's hard to adjust to schedule. So if someone is suddenly getting up an hour early or, or asked to go to bed an hour early, that can be disruptive and confusing for the person with the diagnosis. So what does that lead to then? What are the the short-term and long-term risks of someone who is perhaps a little out of balance by that one hour? I think what we see is any cause in um, problems with the sleep is going to increase confusion in the person with dementia. Um, People who may already have a difficult time uh, being awake and active during the day or sleeping at night, that's going to be exacerbated by the change in schedule. Um, we recommend a lot of things to people to help with sleep disturbance. I'm always recommending, you know, having a structured scheduled day, um, a service like adult daycare can be good for this activities during the day that happen at the same time to just help keep people on that schedule. And when there's a sudden hour long shift in that schedule, that can make things harder. It might be harder to get the person up in the morning for adult day, and then they're not having that structured day and then they're going to sleep during the day, and you might find that uh, it's even harder for them to get to sleep at night. So it's that shift in the schedule may be making um, some problems that are already there more uh, difficult to deal with. We often hear among the general population that those who are 
that when daylight savings time happens, there are greater greater numbers of car crashes and those kinds of things. When you're when you're talking about those who are dealing with the dementia, what is more likely to happen? Well, um, you know, hopefully by the person by the time that the, the person is uh, to the point where they're having these sleep disturbances, they're they're not driving anymore. So hopefully that isn't happening. But it might just become a more stressful caregiving situation for for the caregiver. Um, it is so hard on people to be caring for someone who is awake all night. You know, if that person is is maybe still working or has things to do during the day and they're not able to sleep because their parent or their spouse is awake at night, then um, the care partner, you know, is probably at, at risk. We know that um, not getting enough sleep is really bad for cognition, even in, in people that don't have a, a disease process like dementia. So it can impact the health of the caregiver. I, I definitely talk to many caregivers whose health is being negatively impacted by lo- loss of sleep. So you want, want anything, you know, to make that worse for that person. Is gaining an hour the same as losing an hour? Is there any real difference in terms of disrupting sleep patterns? Well, I don't know any data about that, but it is a shift in, in the time. You know, you the person with dementia isn't necessarily going to understand that now they need to um, go to bed early or, you know, they're not going to sleep in that extra hour and, and maybe uh, they're, they're getting up. Um, and if, if a person with dementia is up and about at night, um, you know, you you have concerns that that person might try to wander, they might try to leave the house, or they might think they have to get up and, and uh, cook breakfast and leave the stove on, you know, because the care partner isn't awake. So all of those things uh, can be a concern with a, a disruption in the sleep schedule. And how significant of an impact does this have on their caregiver and how do they prepare themselves for the instability that could result from this? Not every person with dementia does have sleep disturbance or, or have uh, behavioral disturbances. And I do always you know, want to emphasize that. But if, if you are caring for someone that has a history of sleep disturbance, or if you notice, if you've noticed in the past, maybe with daylight savings, time changes that uh, this has been a concern. One thing you can do is instead of just all of a sudden changing the clocks an hour, maybe just change them 10 minutes at a time. So you're not abruptly shifting that schedule. Um, the, the things that I recommend for people that are struggling with sleep are, are all of those good sleep hygiene suggestions, which the caregiver would need to implement for the person with dementia. Having a regular schedule as, as much as possible, having activity during the day, getting natural lighting during the day, um, all of those things can be helpful for the person. How many days does it typically take for that adjustment to to take place? How long does it take before they're adjusted typically to that additional hour? As with so many things with dementia, every person is different. Um, people are going to respond in a very individual fashion. So if I were speaking to a family, I'd, I'd want to know, you know, specifically what kinds of concerns they're seeing, what kinds of challenges they're facing. I think it's really going to be different for every person. That's Melissa Tucker from the Alzheimer's Association of Illinois with Eric Stock. Tucker says if you're concerned about memory loss, the association has counselors available on its 24-hour helpline. That number is 1-800-272-3900. We're out of time for this week statewide. Thanks for being with us and join us next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. 
All of our episodes are available at this station's website, and you can also find our weekly podcast through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. State Farm has finalized a $182 million auto policy rate hike in Illinois. Consumer advocates say they want more oversight to limit these types of hikes in the future. Eric Stock reports. The Illinois Public Interest Research Group says the increase adds $58 to the average State Farm customer's annual bill. The group says that represents a total increase of $500 million to State Farm customers' bills in the last 12 months. Abe Scar is the research group's director. He questions how the insurance industry determines rates for policyholders. Insurers are allowed to use all types of non-driving factors when they set rates, things like your credit score or your zip code, uh, education level. It really don't uh, have to do with how safe a driver you are. And that has all different types of impacts uh, and can can lead to some absurd results. There is a proposal in Springfield that would ban the practice of using non-driving factors in setting insurance rates. State Representative Will Gazzardi is a Democrat from Chicago and sponsor of the bill. Gazzardi says the practice the insurance industry uses in setting rates often discriminates. Your car insurance rates should be set on whether you're a safe driver or not, not based on what country you come from or how much school you've been to. Um, We think those are discriminatory factors and they're really often used to set higher rates for people with lower incomes, people of color, for women. And we think that practice is fundamentally unfair. Gazzardi's bill would also require insurers to get approval from the Illinois Department of Insurance for any rate increase. The insurance industry is opposed to the plan. Kevin Martin is executive director of the Illinois Insurance Association. Martin says Illinois has been one of the best states for insurance companies to do business, but that could change if the bill becomes law. And the bottom line with this is that that benefits consumers. It gives them uh, options. It gives them competition of companies that they can, you know, look to try and you know get a policy from at an affordable price, and um, that's what we want. Illinois is one of just two states that does not have state oversight and limits on rate increases. Illinois is home to State Farm, Country Financial, and all state insurance companies. Jerry Theodro is a free market advocate for the nonprofit policy group, the R Institute. Theodro suggests some insurance companies might leave the state if the proposal becomes law. You're going to have fewer companies that are interested, and to the extent that the the rates that are approved are below market rates. They lead to um, unprofitable results. State Representative Will Gazzardi says insurance companies don't seem to have any trouble making big profits under the current system. Insurance companies are making record profits, and they're doing it because they can raise the premiums as much as they want whenever they want. So I think unless we enact some kind of regulation, uh, we're going to see these premiums continue to rise for Illinois consumers for many years to come. State Farm recently reported a $13 billion underwriting loss last year, partly due to costlier auto insurance claims driven by inflation. State Farm declined to comment on Gazzardi's proposal. With reporting from Megan Spurline, Charlie Schlenker, and Lindsey Jones, I'm Eric Stock.
Buses are workhorses. They log hundreds of thousands of miles through the years, carrying thousands of passengers every day to school, work, and other destinations. Once a bus is used up, its destination might be a scrapyard. But there is a new possible destination for at least some buses. Today we revisit Rich Egger's story about a new home for two recently retired public transit buses from western Illinois. Tom Schwartz has loved buses since he was a kid. I guess you could say I was the bus nerd, so uh, even when I was a little kid I would get thrilled when I saw the bus coming. He even collected Matchbox, Hot Wheels, and other toy buses. Schwartz still loves buses when he's not busy with his day job at the Johnsburg School District where transportation is one of his responsibilities, he spends time as president of the Midwest Bus Museum. The organization was founded just a couple years ago. Museum members are fundraising to build a permanent facility, possibly near the museum's temporary site in Richmond in northern Illinois. Schwartz recently came to western Illinois to acquire two buses that McDonough County Public Transportation retired and donated to the museum. So we are just thrilled to be getting them and uh, be able to preserve them in our collection. Both buses are what's known as high floor buses. Schwartz explains. Actually right when you walk in you walk up two large stairs or three large stairs. This is what's changed in transit design. Um, to bring, you know, bring the floor, front floor of the bus down to make it easier for ADA accessibility. So we'll step up into the bus, and it's a conventional design in that the floor throughout the whole bus is the same level. You'll see modern buses today, they'll have a low floor in the front, and then a couple stairs in the back, which makes it great for the uh, front of the bus to have ADA seating. The high floor buses did have wheelchair lifts, but they were slow and cumbersome. He calls the low-floor buses the king of the transportation industry today. Schwartz says the buses just donated to the museum are from the 1990s or early 2000s. The oldest vehicle in the museum's collection is a 1942 twin coach. All the buses have an interesting story in how they survived all these years. This particular 1942 twin coach survived because it was modified and made into a sightseeing bus. So they literally chopped the top off, uh, changed the seats out, and it was uh, known as the Tennesseer, and it was used for sightseeing in Tennessee. He says the twin coach ended up in an Indiana junkyard before the museum found it and saved it. They've cleaned it up and use it for tours and sightseeing. Miranda Lambert is director of McDonough County Public Transportation. She says when her agency retires a bus, it checks with the Illinois Department of Transportation to see if the vehicle can be used by any other agency in the state. If not, they usually end up getting sold, often for scrap. But in the case of the two newly retired buses, Lambert says Jeff Waxman of IDOT suggested something else, donating them to the museum. So when he saw that we were disposing these two items and saw the type of buses they were, he touched base with the museum to see if they currently had those type of vehicles. And once they realized there was a void there, he reached out to see if the city would be interested in donating them to the museum. Lambert says the donated buses were replaced with 2019 New Flyer low floor buses. While the museum collects all types of buses, it places an emphasis on school buses. Tom Schwartz believes school buses get overlooked by other transportation museums. 
And as a self-proclaimed bus nerd, who as a child was thrilled by the sight of an approaching school bus, it's his passion to educate others about their importance and how they've changed through the years. Rich Egger reporting. In 2021, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health awarded a quarter of a billion dollars in grants to improve health literacy in some minority communities. Rockford was one of them. Yvonne Booz tells us how the city and another institution used poetry to highlight health literacy. Rockford Ready is an initiative that aims to improve health literacy in the community. It partnered with the University of Illinois in Chicago to help spread the message through poetry in English and in Spanish. A six-part video series was created in partnership with Rockford Ready, the City of Rockford, and the Rockford Area Arts Council. It was directed by Corbin Tyson of Frank and Harvey Film Productions. Don't leave me hanging on for more explanation. Say it all right here, right now, and don't spare my feelings. Juliana Gamero is a former Rockford Youth Poet Laureate. She wrote poems to help bridge communications across generations. I tell him to breathe. There's a waver in his voice when he asks for rough translations. But I'm in an interview that took place last year at the beginning of the initiative, Gamero said Rockford Ready was building the confidence of some of the city's residents. It's an important message because sometimes you're scared to ask questions, but it can be really difficult to like actually admit that you don't know something or it can be a really difficult thing and it's more common than you'd expect. Paula Allen Mears is a professor of medicine at the University of Illinois in Chicago. She leads a program on health literacy. Allen Mears says she loves poetry. But adding the poetry series with the youth voices, I think creates a lot of opportunity for the intergenerational um, transfer of knowledge and sharing of knowledge. Anquanette Parham is the executive director of Health and Human Services for the City of Rockford. She says using poetry was a great avenue to navigate through some of the intricacies around communicating with health providers. It was really just a great opportunity to to use the arts um, to 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 heighten um, the importance of the topic and to really engage in this really critical conversation. Parham says the importance of health literacy doesn't begin in adulthood, so it's important for young people to learn about this and to be comfortable about speaking up. Alan Mears mentions a survey that focuses on adult literacy done by the National Center for Education Statistics that shows work needs to be done in the adult population. And in the United States, we found that 12% of Americans, adult Americans, had a difficult time with complicated health literacy tasks. She says she's hoping that the Rockford Ready Initiative can put a dent in that number. Parham says in addition to the poetry series, Rockford Ready is using other avenues to get the word out. We've produced um, what we call Ask Your Pharmacist, which is like a Facebook Live, where we go over a variety of um, health literacy topics in a variety of settings. 
we've created toolkits for the use of individuals and community organizations and healthcare organizations. Parham says talking about the importance of improving health literacy for people of color in the community has also brought community organizations together. It's really allowed them to get engaged in a very meaningful way about something that we're very hopeful can have a lasting impact in our community. The poetry series and other educational tools for health literacy can be found on the Rockford Ready Facebook page. Blaring on city streets from lingering infection. I'm Yvonne Booz. I wonder if it could be me, honest red, cool blue. If it's between holding on to my breath and being at the brink of death, or swallowing my pride and ask until there's nothing left, my mouth would be a cannon and I would be firing off. Illinois leads the way in increasing Medicaid qualifying undocumented immigrants. Maria Gardner-Laura spoke with a Northern Illinois University researcher on the subject. Northern Illinois University history professor Beatrix Hoffman has a new book coming out next year which gives a history of immigrants and migrants to the U.S. and the fight for health care since 1848. Illinois recently expanded Medicaid to qualifying undocumented Illinois residents aged 42 and up. Undocumented residents aren't eligible to purchase marketplace coverage through the Affordable Care Act. After that exclusion by Obamacare, the fight really had to move to the states. So that's when we started to see states like Illinois and California have you know, local movements to push their legislators to pass smaller Medicaid expansions. She says Obamacare ensured that insurance companies couldn't exclude people based on pre-existing conditions and subsidize coverage for folks in certain income categories. But the affordable coverage has a lot of out-of-pocket payments, so people end up paying a lot more, and it also covers a lot less. So they can't kick you off, but they don't have to cover everything. She says the American healthcare system is profit-driven, which incentivizes excluding some and limiting coverage. Hoffman says hospitals and insurance companies' private interests have strong influence in the political system. It's a mess. <laughs> okay, yeah, that sounds like a title of another book. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> she says historically, some of the pretexts for excluding and deporting immigrants was that they were viewed as carrying disease. The history actually shows that immigrants do not tend to be unhealthy. Immigrants do not bring epidemics. Also, she says research, including her own, shows that immigrants aren't a burden on public health or welfare programs. She says undocumented immigrants are ineligible for many programs, but it's also fear that deters some from seeking services they do qualify for. The system is designed to make immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees afraid to seek health care or to seek help. She says they may fear being identified as undocumented, exposing them to deportation. She says alongside a health care system that excludes immigrants is a U.S. economy that historically depends on their labor. She says during World War II and up to the mid-60s through the Bracero program, American companies recruited and employed Mexican workers onto farms and railroads. Hoffman says the end of the program meant there was no longer a legal pathway for workers to take jobs that were available. So it was really government policy that created the undocumented worker. And she says a policy satisfied groups who, based on racial ideology, believed Mexican immigration threatened the white race. So there were racist motivations to labeling Mexican and other workers and other immigrants as 
undesirable. The fact that they weren't fully restricted and that people kept coming in was also of great benefit to these industries. She's referring to agriculture, fruit and vegetable picking, and meat packing factories throughout the country that are heavily dominated by immigrant labor. Those industries do benefit from you know, having them come in, but having them not have a lot of rights. And they certainly don't have to provide their workers health care. She says it's grassroots movements that have spurred government to improve access to health care and lead the push for a just immigration policy. Even DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the last major immigration policy created, she says was not an easy feat. Even Obama had to be pushed very hard to create DACA, and that was a reaction to the fact that he was deporting so many people. Undocumented residents can obtain care in the emergency room and at federally funded health clinics, but she says there's not enough of them. She says these limits can lead to bad health outcomes and put a financial strain on the system. Hoffman says the U.S. is long overdue for an overhaul of its health care system and immigration policy. I think that immigration policy also has to change because our immigration policy now is really bad for everybody's health. WNIJ has reported on how immigrant rights groups like the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights continue to advocate at the state level to expand access to health care for undocumented residents. Amaria Garner Lara. Maria Gardner Lara is a Report for America Corps member. Her beat includes covering local governments and the growing Latino community in Northern Illinois. If you miss statewide, you can always find our episodes there at the station's website, and you can access our weekly podcast through the NPR One app. Still ahead, we turn our clocks forward this weekend for daylight saving time. What impact does that have on people with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia? We'll have that story still to come on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. When children from low-income families are in extreme emotional distress and threaten to harm themselves or others, Illinois sends a paramedic of sorts. It's through a state program called SAS, and it can be a godsend, especially as the mental health crisis for children has reached critical levels during the pandemic. But a WBEZ investigation shows the safety net has far too many holes. In the first of a series of stories, WBEZ's Sarah Karp brings us to the front lines of the crisis and a warning for listeners. The story contains language about suicide. It's after 4 p.m. and crisis worker Randy Sadler is in the back room of an old office building. He's about to do a mental health assessment of a 12-year-old boy in distress. I'm about to go grab an assessment. I'll get an interpreter on the phone, okay? Usually, Sadler is able to lock his kind brown eyes with the child in front of him. Usually, he can tell their mom he knows it's difficult to see their baby in such a dark place. But Sadler's office is on the south side, and this boy is far away on the west side, sitting in a school counselor's office. The quickest way to reach the boy is over the phone. So Sadler dials in an interpreter for the mother, who only speaks Spanish, and quickly gets to the heart of why he was called in. Did you say that you wanted to commit suicide by grabbing a knife while your parents were asleep? Yes. 
In his small, high-pitched voice, he says yes. He's only 12. Immediately, he starts crying. The counselor tells Sadler the boy said he's getting sadder and sadder. And, quote, sometimes I want to get out of this world and never get back. Sadler knows what he has to do. Mr. Interpreter, can you tell mom my recommendation is going to be for inpatient uh, psychiatric treatment? This is a life or death situation, and it's Sadler's job to get this child help. He works for Ada S. McKinley Community Services. It's one of more than two dozen organizations that work with the state to do mental health assessments for low-income children in crisis and then get them into inpatient or outpatient treatment. In the decades Sadler's been doing it, it has always been difficult. Mental health services for children are lacking, especially in poor communities where health disparities run deep. But now, with the pandemic, the need for mental health support is so great, and all systems, from schools to clinics, are taxed. And this fall day, the limits of what Sadler can provide loom large. Earlier in the day, as we drove from one assessment to another, Sadler said he tries his best not to recommend hospitalization. It's tough on a family, and beds are scarce. So even when it gets there, I'm sending these people out of their neighborhoods into total foreign areas because it just doesn't exist. This is a factor with the 12-year-old in the West Side School. When the mother hears her son may have to go to a hospital far away and he could be there for as long as 14 days, she gets scared. She says no, she doesn't want him to go. As she says this, the boy can be heard sobbing in the background, and the mom is crying also. Eventually, the counselor asks if at the very least they should recommend that the mom remove the knives from the home. And not only lock up the knives, but she needs to remove any and all sharp objects, anything that he could get his hands on to harm himself. When Sadler hangs up the phone, he's required to immediately call Child Protective Services. If they feel it's necessary, they can take the boy into state custody to get him to a hospital to make sure he's safe. Thank you for calling the Illinois Child Abuse. But Sadler is obviously upset by what happened. Yet he can't linger on that case. His phone buzzes all day long with assessments that must be done. Sadler spent that fall morning at a school on the southwest side. I'm here from SAS. The school counselor leads Sadler into a sparse conference room where his limits will once again come into play. Sadler situates himself across the table from a thin boy in an oversized white t-shirt. He looks at some paperwork and then asks straightforward questions. It says that you're feeling anxious. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me why? The boy says he feels overwhelmed by daily routines and panicked about his future. Sadler listens intently. He learns the boy doesn't have an actual plan on how or when he would hurt himself. He decides the boy will be okay with regular therapy, but he sighs. There's a waiting list for counseling. I know. And so I have a thin line to play. You can hear right? the counselor saying, I, I know. The waiting list for therapy program, can be anywhere between four and six really months. And, and Sadler is frank. Right? It's going to be on the mom to get him into treatment. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. The squeaky wheel gets the oil, he says. The counselor tells the mother she's going to have to follow up and follow up. The mother, who came to school unsure of how to help her son, begging for anything, leaves with a sheet of paper with phone numbers on it and a tall task. Schools, clinics, community organizations have all taken notice of the limits of the SAS program. 
They say too often they have to wait hours for crisis workers. And then, all too often, they're met with referrals, long waiting lists, and rejections. Jose V. Duet is with Airy Family Health, which has clinics throughout the city. He says often people criticize SAS, but really they're part of a broken system. They do the best they can, I have to say that. I think they're understaffed and the demand is so high that oftentimes people confuse those variables with their encounters with the patients. Sadler imagines all day how things could be different. He has a long list among them. Like it would be beautiful to be able to, it's Thursday, let's have this kid assigned a therapist in the next week or so. The state knows things are not good and launched a program that's supposed to increase intensive mental health services for children in Illinois. Yet, at the moment anyway, Sadler sums it up like this. The resources just aren't there, but it's what we live in, and so we deal with that. Sarah Karp, WBEZ News. Providers say the SAS program is sorely needed, but underfunded and struggling. Kristen Schorsch picks up the story. She explains why children are crisscrossing Illinois, competing for the same small pool of mental health resources. That's even as the demand for help intensifies. Last year, a teenage boy in mental health crisis showed up in the emergency department eight times at St. Bernard Hospital on Chicago's south side. They were never able to transfer him to a hospital that has psychiatric services for children. St. Bernard doesn't offer that. He's not getting placed, so then he's not getting care. And so we have a clear miss here. Dr. Ashley Magda is a senior physician in the ER. What are we going to do to address this? Because just coming back to the ER is obviously not solving the issue. The boy lingered because he was in the foster care system without a stable home. There might not be a place to send him back to if he gets a psych bed. These are the hardest kids to place. St. Bernard has other kids who keep coming back and get labeled. Their sometimes violent behavior is well known. It's hard to place them too. Some days it has a big emotional toll and you just think about certain cases. How are we supposed to expect them to go succeed in life if we're not giving them the foundation that we know they need? Magda has worked at St. Bernard her entire career, a quiet, strong presence in the hospital. She's a mother too and is an advocate for these children. At least once a week, a child in mental health crisis shows up at St. Bernard in one of the city's poorest communities. Staff call the state hotline to get help from what's called the SAS program. This is supposed to be a gateway for low-income children to get immediate help. Then these children wait, days, sometimes weeks, for a bed to open up at another hospital, if that's what they need. Joy Greer oversees nurses in the ER. We go buy magazines and coloring books and buy them what they want and, you know, really cater to these kids. And that's not treatment. That is um, pacification. The children tend to linger outside their exam rooms because there's little to do. There aren't even TVs to watch. They see what's happening around them. The patients who were shot, in labor, or having heart attacks. The cops who are guarding other patients' doors. Here's what's unfolding beyond the walls of St. Bernard that helps explain why kids are stuck. WBEZ spent months interviewing people across the state and obtaining records. We found that SAS is buckling under the weight of overwhelming mental health needs without enough resources. SAS was created to connect low-income kids who have Medicaid insurance or none at all with mental health treatment. Children who have private insurance typically have a leg up. More doctors are willing to treat them because private insurance tends to pay best. But there are not a lot of places to send children who need treatment, whether that's to a hospital or for outpatient therapy. Hence the bottleneck in St. Bernard's ER. 
Here's Magda again. We'll call places that have open beds and they'll just say they're not a good fit. And it's like, I mean, what are we supposed to do with that? Children across Illinois are chasing the same dearth of resources. Take hospital beds for the youngest patients having suicidal thoughts. WBEZ has found that in some cases, SAS providers send children across the state, sometimes across the Midwest. Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, Indiana, um, Tennessee on occasion. Kelsey DePiro with the nonprofit C4 in Chicago lists where she's tried to get children into psych beds. We're going from Stroger to Missouri. That's a very long uh, ambulance ride. And then once they get there, there's no ambulance ride back. Only around 15% of all hospitals in Illinois have psych beds for children. And that'll take a lot of Medicaid patients. The entire south side of Chicago and rural areas of the state are psych bed deserts. Have a few stitches or autism? That limits children's options. Melissa Coleman is a veteran SAS provider in the Chicago area. She describes phone calls as she looks for treatment for low-income children. It does not make me feel good when someone asks me what's the race of the person, because it doesn't matter. And some hospitals will ask you what the person's zip code is. Why? I don't even understand that part. And they ask what kind of Medicaid insurance the child has, which really ruffles Coleman. And you either take it all or you don't take anything, because that limits our families for getting the help that they need, and that's wrong. Our investigation reveals there's little coordination to prevent providers from chasing the same beds. And there's no window into how many beds are actually available or wait times. The outpatient world has a lot of the same problems. At Erie Family Health, Jose Viduet and Sweet Baron try to make it easier for patients. Inside a small room at a Northside clinic, Viduet walks me through a database. Everything is broken down by a specific region. So as you see here, it says Lake County, Evanston, Far North. Viduet is Erie's clinical director of behavioral health. He opens a tab and shows even more options. Agency names, the health insurance they take, their wait list. When patients need a referral, Barron doesn't just get places to call. She already knows there's an opening. It's unfortunate that this stuff is not out there already and that it's not accessible, but I try not to think about that part and just because it'll make you cry. A school counselor told WBEZ she calls all the outpatient places students are referred to by SAS. That's how she knows there are no spots. Many therapists don't take insurance at all. And given the workforce shortage, some therapists who do take Medicaid are so full their wait lists are closed. Back at St. Bernard, Magda wonders what's at stake if nothing changes. When will the government finally realize that if we don't help these kids as kids, we're just going to have a bunch of very troubled adults? There are signs of hope. The state is investing big money to put more intensive mental health services in communities and has a new blueprint to revamp mental health care for children overall. Child welfare expert Dana Weiner led the effort. Her plan includes creating a portal for families to search for treatment. Weiner also wants providers that do business with the state to eventually be transparent about whether they have beds or appointments available. Right now, we just know where the providers are. It's not enough. You've got to start somewhere. And I have, I'm just cultivating a vision for how do we take the stuff we have and some new technology and some new requirements to build the system that we need. Weiner wants to strengthen the safety net in communities so children don't have to chase the same small pool of hospital beds. Kristen Schorsch, WBEZ News. Reporters Sarah Karp and Susie Ann contributed to that story. If you or a loved one are having thoughts of suicide, you can call 988, the Crisis Lifeline. We'll have more on this story coming up next week on Statewide.
Well, this winter, Natalie Phelps Finney was appointed the new director of the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, pending state Senate confirmation. Previously, she was a deputy director for the department. She's also served as a state representative for part of Southern Illinois and worked as a nurse. Director Finney joined Melba Lara. Your department certainly does a lot of work in a number of areas, wildlife planning, oil and gas management, nature conservation. Where in your work would you say is the impact of climate change most apparent? Speaking for our biologists, they're seeing things every day, you know, whether it's the invasive species, increase in disease, we're seeing chronic wasting disease in greater numbers. And this all has a domino effect, and it's a multi-pronged problem, right? You have invasive species and habitat loss. I know in our area, in southern Illinois, we're seeing lots of armadillos. You never saw armadillos this far north. You know, in and of itself, I'm glad to see armadillos. I'm not opposed to having armadillos here, but... What we don't see is how these changes really strain certain strained and endangered species. The smallest things can make the biggest difference. I would relate it back to my, um, as a nurse practitioner, back to the body. You know, you get one little electrolyte out of place and you think, no big deal. Well, it is. It's life-threatening, even that one. Illinois, of course, is a pretty big state. We have rural communities. We have urban communities. We have suburban communities. How are your priorities different for urban areas versus rural communities? That, that's a great question. So in the urban communities, one you know major concern is the urban heat island effect and the lack of trees. So we're looking at ways we can we can add trees to our urban areas. In some of the rural areas, you know we're looking at removing hazardous trees, um, like those that were killed by the emerald ash borer. So those dead ash trees um, become a hazard. Just forestry, one example in forestry, how it's different from from urban goal versus the city goal. One of the nice things about being a new director of an agency is you also get to focus on projects that might be near and dear to your heart. Is there anything that you have been looking at and looking forward to? I'm a conservationist at heart. We have this one planet, and we we have this one chance to to right the ship. So overall, the big thing for me as as the director of IDNR is to lead by example. And the main point I want to make here, Melba, is that we need to do it by bringing people along. So, you know, I'm from Southern Illinois where we had coal mines and people are very angry still about those lost jobs. And it's not about the coal. Nobody wants to damage the environment. It's about the jobs. And so people felt alienated. So how do we go forward and get people's buy-in and, and get people really to understand this is a real problem and bring people along Natalie Phelps Finney is the acting director of the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Director Finney, thanks for talking with us. Yeah, thank you, Melba. We've got more on statewide. Stay right here.